Well, good evening, everyone. Good to see you all. I hope you've enjoyed uh, the Book of Acts so far. Sounds a bit, you know, corny, but uh, it's action-packed, right? There's just lots that, that happens as we're kicking off in the book and uh, hearing the way God did these incredible things 2,000 years ago through Jesus, his Son, by the power of his Spirit. Let me pray uh, that we might be encouraged and emboldened tonight. Well, Heavenly Father, we do indeed uh, thank you that for the last 2,000 years or so you've been building your church. Uh, we thank you, Father, for all that you've done in Jesus, your Son, and by the power of your Spirit. And we pray that today you are still at work. Jesus reigns still as King. The Holy Spirit still works in your people. And we pray this evening that we might be emboldened as followers of Jesus. This we ask in his name. Amen. Well, uh, how do you go at uh, speaking the name of Jesus? I know it's a bit of an odd question to ask, but again, as we started in this you know, action-packed book of Acts, what's been very clear is how much the Apostle Peter speaks the name of Jesus. Uh, we've already heard his first two sermons, and the first two sermons from Peter, they're, they're all about Jesus. And uh, today in Acts chapter 4, we get sermon number 3 by Peter, and surprise, surprise, it's all about Jesus. And what makes it incredible is just how different this is to the Peter of two months earlier. So 60 days earlier, do you remember what Peter was like at the night Jesus was arrested? Do you remember what Peter was like the night Jesus was killed? Uh, do you remember how Peter had this servant girl who, who would have no status, no reason to fear a servant girl in that age? This servant girl asked him, are you a follower of Jesus? Do you remember that? And do you remember how another man came up and said to Peter, isn't Jesus your teacher? Isn't he your master? And how a third person came to Peter and said, hold on, didn't I just see you in the Garden of Gethsemane with Jesus? It's you. I know you were there. I saw you. And do you remember what Peter said each time, each of those three times? He said, I'm not a follower. I don't know what you're talking about. I, I don't know this, this Jesus. See, do you remember what Peter did as well after Jesus was killed? And the apostles as well, the rest of the disciples, they hid away. They were scared, frightened for their lives, worried they'd be next. First the master, then the followers. That's how it goes. But it's incredible. Only two months after that event, here we have Peter in the book of Acts, and he cannot top, stop speaking about Jesus. And, and he speaks about Jesus to everyone and anyone in private, in public, boldly. And what chapter 4 of Acts does is it forces us to ask, what changed? You know, why, why the change in Peter? Why is he so radically different? And it makes us, I think, ask ourselves, how are we going at speaking that name of Jesus? Do, do we speak boldly like we've heard Peter the last few weeks? Are we like Peter and John? And if not, why not? And what will strike us in this chapter is that at one level, nothing has changed for Peter. Again, it's incredible, as we'll see, that the powers that be, that Peter feared, the reason why Peter denied knowing Jesus and hid away in a room, the powers that be, they're still in charge. They're still there. And the social pressures that Peter would have felt not to speak the name of Jesus, they're still there. It's still the same. Nothing has changed in that sense in Peter's world. But then at another level, everything because of Jesus has now changed. And this will be so relevant for us today because our world, it's not that different to the world of the Apostle Peter. Sometimes, sometimes we think for them it was really easy to speak about Jesus. It wasn't. 
the pressures that Peter and the others felt from the powers that be and the social pressures they felt not to speak about Jesus, they were the same back then as they are today. They're still here with us today. But Peter, 2,000 years ago, spoke boldly. Why? So my hope is that what we'll uh, see in Acts chapter 4 is an encouragement of Peter's boldness. But even more so, I hope we'll learn why it is that Peter was so bold. And uh, if you're here today and you're not yet a follower of Jesus, my hope is that you'll see that everything indeed has changed because of what Jesus did and what God did through him 2,000 years ago. So let's uh, jump into this chapter and remember uh, where we left off last week. I'm sure some of you still remember the lovely singing of Phil, singing about the lame man walking and leaping and praising God. Do you know that Phil did not sing as much as he did at night church at morning church? (laughs) Phil's scared of morning church, but he loves you guys. He sang the whole song here. I told morning church that this morning, Phil, so you might get some questions. But we're following on from that healing. Uh, remember, Peter was, uh, had healed, Peter and John had healed the lame man. And then Peter called on the crowd to repent. Peter was basically saying, recognize that it's by the name of Jesus that this, lamb, this lame man has been healed. And so the right thing to do in light of the power of Jesus and the power of Jesus' name is to turn to him. Make him your Lord and King. That's what Peter did. He told him to repent. That's what we saw last week. But as we kick off chapter 4, we see that the powers that be did not like what Peter was teaching about Jesus. So pick it up with me, Acts chapter 4, verse 1. And again, you really must have a Bible. You will get lost if you do not have a Bible. So stick your hand up and Ellie's got some more Bibles. You need one because I'll read from it and it's great for you to follow along. So Acts chapter 4, verse 1, and this is point 1 in your outlines. In Jesus, the resurrection of the dead. Let me read from verse 1. Now, as they, Peter and John, were speaking to the people, the priests, the commander of the temple police, and the Sadducees confronted them because they were provoked that they were teaching the people and proclaiming the resurrection from the dead using Jesus as the example. So they seized them and put them in custody until the next day, since it was already evening. And what's interesting is Acts chapter 4 begins is why Peter and John get taken into custody. Uh, just did you notice why it is they were taken into custody? What provoked uh, the, the, the rulers and, and the Sadducees? It wasn't because they, they were speaking in the name of Jesus, all the lovely things that Jesus did beforehand. It wasn't because they were talking about the miracles Jesus did or, or even the things Jesus taught. Look at verse 2. They were provoked because Peter and John were teaching about the resurrection from the dead using Jesus as the example. And so they weren't teaching Jesus' resurrection per se. They were teaching about the resurrection from the dead using Jesus as the example. And so they were going around saying to everyone, the resurrection age has begun. Now is a day of salvation. Now is a time to repent. Now that Jesus is raised, you need to turn to him. That's what they were teaching. But why is it that the priests and the rulers and the Sadducees were so provoked by that teaching? Well, ultimately, it's because it undermined their power. Uh, You see, the Sadducees, they taught against the idea of resurrection. And again, I'm going to be corny, but it's a good way to remember what the Sadducees are on about. But the Sadducees are sad, you see, because they don't believe in resurrection from the dead. So when they die, that's it. No resurrection. So they're sad, you Sadducees. Uh, You see, they went around teaching there was no such thing as resurrection from the dead. But if Jesus rose from the dead, then the Sadducees are proved wrong. 
And if they're wrong, then they can no longer exist as a religious power. They can no longer hold their status that they had over the people. They're found wrong. And it's the same with the other religious groups here. The priests and the rulers and the Pharisees, they did believe in resurrection from the dead. They taught about the the resurrection age, but they taught that it didn't happen in Jesus because they rejected Jesus, that they killed Jesus. And so again, if Jesus is risen, if he is resurrected, then the priests and the rulers and the Pharisees would be proved wrong and they would lose their power. They would lose their status. And what do the powerful always do, almost always do, when their power is threatened? They eliminate the threat. And so the powers that be, what do they do? They seize Peter and John and they put them in prison to shut them up, to punish them, really. But incredibly, look at what happens in verse 4. Look at verse 4. But many of those who heard that message of the resurrection from the dead in Jesus, many of those who heard the message believed. And the number of the men came to about 5,000. With who knows how many women and children on top of that. And again, that's, that's just incredible, isn't it? You, you've got to, as we're in the book of Acts, you have to picture the scene. You've got to put yourself in the story because these are live events that happen. Put yourself in the events. There they are getting arrested, getting told to shut up with the Sadducees and the rulers trying to eliminate the threats. And yet the people of God are multiplying while they're getting arrested. Uh, at least 5,000 of them. It's incredible. It's like that, um, that serpentine uh, water monster. If you've ever seen Hercules, the Disney cartoon, I loved it as a kid. I wasn't a Christian. I know it's pagan. Uh, but every time Hercules you know, chopped the serpent's head off, it would multiply, chop more heads and multiply, multiply. That's this. They're trying to cut the threat and yet multiplying and multiplying the people of God. And that's what we must remember, particularly in the book of Acts. You can't stop the work of God. If it's a work of God, it cannot be stopped. Arrest them, persecute them, even kill them, and the will of God will still be done. Uh, At a conference earlier this year, and some of you might have been there, there was an English pastor who shared about this time when he uh, stood up at another conference he was at, and he stood up to pray for the persecuted church in the Middle East. And as he was praying, mid-prayer, another man from the Middle East got up and stopped him praying. And he stopped him and he said, do not pray that God will end the persecution in the Middle East, which is a shocking thing to say. But the reason he asked him to stop was because he did not want the church of the Middle East to end up like the church of the West. Comfortable, complacent, materialistic. See, as far as this Middle Eastern brother was concerned, the persecution in the churches in the Middle East made them grow. They were multiplying. And it made them strong and it made them robust. Now, I'm not suggesting that we don't pray for the persecuted church. We should. And I'm not saying we should pray for persecution. That's not something we should pray for. But isn't Acts such a good reminder to us? God does all things for his glory, for the good of his people. And even as Peter and John get arrested and they begin, the, 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 the uh, persecution in Acts begins, God's people multiply. God is glorified. People are saved. But as we get to verse 5, it's now the next day. So they've been in prison overnight, and now we're up to our next point as well, Peter before the court. Look with me from verse 5. So the next day, after they've been in prison overnight, their rulers, elders, and scribes assembled in Jerusalem 
with Annas the high priest, Caiaphas, John and Alexander, and all the members of the high priestly family. After they had Peter and John stand before them, they asked a question, by what power or in what name have you done this? Have you healed that lame man? And what we need to realize now as we picture this scene of the court is that the court that Peter is standing before and even the individuals that, that, that Peter is standing before, it is the same court and the same men who killed Jesus, who just 60 days earlier stirred up the crowds and wrongly accused Jesus and got the crowds to scream, crucify him, crucify him. And Peter, he knows this. He knows they're the men who sent Jesus to crucifixion. And again, put yourself in Peter's shoes at this point for a moment. Just imagine being Peter. You know what that court can do. You know there's no justice. Imagine you were Peter. Imagine you were before that corrupt court who killed your master, and they know that you've been teaching in the name of your master. Well, what would you say if you were Peter? Now, what would you do in that context? Well, look at what Peter does. Look at verse 8. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, was filled with the Holy Spirit and said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today about a good deed done to a disabled man by what means he was healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, whom you crucified and whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing here before you healthy. See, that's bold. They could kill him. They killed Jesus. Peter's small fry compared to the popularity of Jesus. And there's Peter, and he says, you want to know what power and what name this man has been healed? It's by the name of Jesus. Remember Jesus? He's saying to the court. Remember that man from Nazareth that you killed, that you tried to get rid of? It's by him. It's bold. And what an incredible transformation. You see, we know what Peter did last time. When, when Jesus was called to account by that same court, Peter hid. And, and uh, he, he denied even knowing Jesus to, to a servant girl. And so it makes us ask, why? How? What, what made the, the Peter of Acts chapter 4 so radically different to the Peter of two months ago? You know, you forget those before and after shots of the you know, boarding middle-aged man who then has hair like Fabio. No, this is extreme. This is radical. But why? Why the change? Well, I think we get three reasons as to why Peter is so different now. For one, it's because of what we saw two weeks ago with the coming of the Holy Spirit. And it's there in verse 8. So you look again at verse 8. You see, Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit. And you see, the Holy Spirit is the only reason any one of us here believe in Jesus. It's the only reason any one of us here are transformed to be more like Jesus. It's a work of God. It's a work of the Spirit. So that's the first reason. But the second reason is because the one whom they, the court, crucified, God raised. See, look at verse 11. Look at what Peter says, verse 11. He says, it's because this Jesus is the stone rejected by you builders, that, that is you rulers and powers that be, which has now become the cornerstone. And now do you know what a cornerstone is? There's an image up on the screen. You see, the cornerstone is the most important stone that the rest of the building depends upon and is built upon. And what the court had done is reject that most important stone. 
So, so imagine, uh, you know, there's a master builder and he's picking through a whole bunch of stones trying to find the best one to start his building with. And he, he finds one and it looks pretty good, but then he says, no, no, I don't like this one. And he throws it away. He thinks that stone is useless. Well, that's what the court did in killing Jesus. They rejected that most important stone. And in raising Jesus from the dead, God declared that rejected stone as the cornerstone. And Peter... He knows this. So we've got to remember this. Peter has seen the risen Jesus with his own eyes. He saw Jesus killed on the cross. He knows he was buried and put in the tomb, and he saw him raised. See, Peter knows that Jesus Jesus is that most important stone. So that's the second reason. But the third reason why Peter is so radically transformed is because of what he says in verse 12. Look at verse 12. Look at the truth he's come to know. Verse 12, Peter says, There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to people, and we must be saved by it. Put simply, Peter knows that Jesus is the only name that can save. And so why why would he deny the name that can save? And why would he be ashamed of that name that actually saved him, that spared him eternal judgment and hell? You see, we should be hugely encouraged by Peter's transformation. It should actually spur us on to trust the truth and power of the name of Jesus. Why? Well, just think about it humanly and logically for a second. If it was all a hoax, if if Peter had never seen Jesus raised from the dead, never saw his resurrected body, why would you die for a lie? See, Peter here, he, he suffers. He's, he's put in prison. Next week, we'll see him beaten and flogged. Eventually, Peter will die. He'll be killed for professing Jesus as Lord. Why would you die for something that's a lie? You see, the reason Peter was so radically transformed is because he knew that everything about Jesus is true. And it's not that Peter's character changed. He, he wasn't afraid to hide before. See, Peter was coward enough to deny Jesus three times, to, to, to remove himself from a situation of harm. No, he's changed because he knows the risen Jesus and he knows it's all true. If you'd never seen him with his very own eyes, then do you think that Peter would have been at the temple complex the way he was? See, the, the, the temple complex was the lion's den. They're the people that killed Jesus and Peter went there to talk about Jesus. See, he was transformed because he knew it to be true And that should powerfully affirm for us that everything about Jesus is true. It's spread because it's true, because it happened. But just because it's true, it doesn't mean that everyone then believes in Jesus. And this is point three now, the court's hard heart. And as we get to uh, this part of Acts chapter 4, this section, it's just really sad. If you look from verse 13. Verse 13, when they, the court, observed the boldness of Peter and John and realized they were uneducated and untrained men, they were amazed and they'd recognized that they had been with Jesus. And since they saw the men who had been healed standing with them, they had nothing to say in response. You see, all the evidence was there. Peter and John, they spoke in a way that was so learned. They, they, they spoke in a way that, how, how could they know the Old Testament the way they did? They never went to rabbi school. How could they know? It's incredible. 
The lame man who was only 40 years young, because 40 years is not old, 40 years young, the lame man was standing there. Not that I'm biased. The lame man was standing right in front of them. Incredible. And yet, instead of doing what they should do at that point, which is repent, which is go, oh, Jesus, the man we crucified, he's Lord and King. I'm going to bow the knee to him. They don't do that. What do they do? Look at verse 18. Look at what the, what the court does. Verse 18, so they called for Peter and John and they ordered them not to preach, not to teach at all in the name of Jesus. It's just sad because it, the truth, it's, it's so undeniable. The power of Jesus was standing right in front of them with the lame man. That's why he was healed, to display the power of Jesus' name. But they loved their own way of life too much. They valued their own way of life even above the truth. Uh, Years ago when I was in youth ministry, there was a young man who was about 19 or 20 or so at the time. And uh, he he knew about Jesus because he'd heard about Jesus at youth. He was actually persuaded about Jesus. Uh, He believed what the Bible said. He actually believed that, that Jesus is a real historical figure He believed that Jesus lived and died, even that Jesus rose from the dead. He he was persuaded that the resurrection was real. And uh, I thought, as he he came through youth and kind of grew as a a young man, I thought, great, you know, he's been coming to church for three years. Uh, Fantastic. He believes Jesus. He's a Christian. He's persuaded. Praise God. But then he said to me, but I can't call myself a Christian. And I said, why? You know, you you believe in Jesus and you believe it's all true and and you, you believe that he's risen And I asked him, why don't you call yourself a Christian then? He said, well, I don't want to count the cost. I don't want to change my life. I don't want to count the cost of being a follower of Jesus. And at one level, it was good that that he understood what it meant to follow Jesus. This wasn't going to be some sort of half-hearted following of Jesus. But at another level, I mourned his response. It it broke my heart. He, He loved the way of sin and the way of the world too much more than the truth, more than he realized how much God had loved him in Jesus. And what this young man had failed to believe at the time was that God's way is actually better than the way of sin and better than the way of the world. You see, these men of the court, they got it so wrong. They crucified Jesus. They killed the Son of God. And even now, as as Peter and John were offering forgiveness of sins to them through Jesus, saying, turn to Jesus and you'll be forgiven, they still did not want to repent. They didn't want to change. They didn't want to let go of their power. They didn't want to soften their hearts. But it's uh, Peter and John's response next that are some of my favorite words in all the Bible. So look at verse 19. And this is our final point, speaking boldly the name of Jesus. Verse 19, look at what they say back to the court after being commanded not to speak. But Peter and John answered them, Whether it's right in the sight of God for us to listen to you rather than to God, you decide, for we are unable to stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. And I love those verses for a few reasons. And the first is because of the irony. Because again, picture picture the scene here. Here are Peter and John, and they're being threatened by the supposed leaders and teachers of God's people in Israel. They're the powers that be. They're supposed to teach God's way. The Sadducees and the scribes are threatening Peter and John. But Peter and John, they make it very clear, no, no, we obey God. We're not frightened by men. We don't listen to the threats of men. We listen to God. 
And then look at what uh, the court says back to Peter and John, or what they say to each other in verse 21. So look at verse 21. Uh, the court says this, After threatening Peter and John further, they, the men of the court, released them, and they found no way to punish them because the people were all giving glory to God over what had been done. For this sign of healing had been performed on a man over 40 years old. You see, the men of the court, they actually feared the people in the crowd. They were the ones that were supposed to be teaching God's way firmly, and yet they wanted to beat Peter and John. They wanted to flog them and punish them, but they didn't because they feared the crowd. They knew if they did, then the crowd would turn on them. They were cowards. There's a real irony there. But the second reason I love Peter and John's words is because of what they say in verse 20. So look at verse 20. And basically they're saying, sure, you can threaten us. Sure, you can even flog us. But verse 20, we can't help but speak about what we've seen and heard. And again, I think it's just so logical. They saw the risen Jesus with their own eyes. The resurrection age had begun. The Holy Spirit had come. They knew for certain that Jesus is Lord and Messiah. And so what do they do? They speak. How can't you if that is true? And you know how sometimes Christians say, well, you know, God never commands us anywhere explicitly that we have to evangelize. Nowhere does God say word for word that you must speak about Jesus. You won't find that verse in the Bible that says you must speak about Jesus to others. That verse doesn't exist. And imagine for a moment that God did do that, that he commanded us as as explicitly as that, that you have to go tell people about my love for them in Jesus. Imagine if God did that. What a burden. And and how fake then? You know, imagine God says, you better go tell the world how much I love you. you. You have to go tell the world how loving a God I am. You need to go tell the world how much you love me. And if you don't, well, you better be careful because you're going to be in all sorts of troubles because you're, you know, you're, you're disobeying my commands. Imagine if God did that. What a burden. And how fake. You see, God doesn't command us like that. But if you understand God's love for you in Jesus, you can't help but speak about him. That's how the gospel works. You can't help but speak about Jesus to others if Jesus truly is Lord and King. If Jesus truly is the only name in which we can be saved, how can we not speak? Uh, Many of you have probably heard this quote before. It's uh, quoted in an excellent book by Rico Tice called Honest Evangelism. Phil and I have both quoted it before at uh, at church here. But uh, Rico uh, quotes the atheist Penn from the magical duo Penn and Teller. And uh, Penn says this about the Christian. He's an atheist, but he says this about the Christian. He says, if you, the Christian, believe that there's a heaven and a hell... And people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life. And you think that it's not really worth telling them this because it would make it socially awkward. How much do you have to hate somebody to not evangelize? How much do you have to hate somebody to believe everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? Now, Penn, he gets a whole host of things wrong. But I think he's right here. If we love people and we understand God's love to us, then the loving thing to do is to speak of Jesus to others. If he's the only name in which people can be saved. But the third reason I love Peter and John's words here is because even though they can't help but speak, that doesn't mean it's easy for them to speak. 
And again, this is really relevant for us today. We've got to realize that first century world, it wasn't easy for them to say, Jesus is Lord. See, the court arrest Peter and John. The powers that be persecute them because they want to shut them up. They want to stop them. The social pressures were the same back then. It was unpopular. It was politically incorrect. It was offensive to say in that first century Roman world, Jesus is Lord. He's the only way. No, no, this is a pagan society. You can't say that. How dare you? It was the same back then. And so what did the apostles and the early followers of Jesus do, knowing that they couldn't help but speak about Jesus, but it was hard to speak about Jesus because it was scary? What did they do? They prayed. And we can't spend our time in these verses, in verses 23 to 31, but just look at verse 29. I think this is a real encouragement for us today in our context. Look at verse 29. Look at what the first believers prayed. Verse 29, they prayed this to God. They said, Now, Lord, consider their threats and stop them and take them away and heap hot coals on their heads. It doesn't say that. What does it say? Verse 29, Now, Lord, consider their threats and grant that us, your slaves, may speak your message with complete boldness. See, isn't that incredible? They were being persecuted. They're going to get persecuted even more, and it was hard, and they don't pray for that to to get taken away as a first point of call. They pray that God would embolden them, help them to speak. See, it's never been easy to speak, but God is pleased to make us bold to speak of Jesus. But let me finish with the question we started with. How are we going at speaking the name of Jesus? Uh, How are you going at speaking that name of Jesus? My guess is that, like me, on a Sunday night, you're very good at it. (laughs) It's very easy to speak about Jesus in this sort of context. Even Wednesday nights at gospel teams, really easy to speak about Jesus or with other snackers when you meet them. But how do you go at other times? Uh, If you're bold, if you're someone who's quite bold, maybe at other times you speak about going to church on a Sunday or or you speak about God or, or even about being a Christian. But how do we go at actually speaking the name of Jesus? To people, And if we don't speak his name, why, why is that? Is it because we just don't think to, because we just forget that we should actually be sharing Jesus with others? Or is it because we're afraid to? Again, saying God seems so much easier, but, but to say Jesus in, in public, that's quite radical. Or is it because we're ashamed to? Because if you say Jesus amongst your social group, wherever that might be, the people will think, well, you're a bit weird. And you're foolish, you're silly to, to believe in that Jesus stuff. You see, what are the things that you can't help but speak about? What are the things you love to speak about? And there are some people I know that, that they just can't help but speak about football every time I see them. I say, hello, how are you going? And they straight away into football talk. Uh, rather, you know, either it's the, it's the inferior overball type or the, the superior you know, round ball type. But it's always football, football, football as soon as I see them. Well, for some, it's their holiday adventures. They love talking about the holidays they went on in the past or the holidays they're just about to go on. And they'll you know, pull out their phones and they'll start flicking, go, oh, look at this, look at look where I've been. It's so lovely and so great. And I'm thinking, wow, I might be lucky to go to one of those places, but whew, that's nice. And they love it. And they want to tell you all about their holidays. Or for others, it's the TV shows and, and the latest Netflix series. Imagine your friends at this point. And whatever they've been watching on Netflix and they're telling you about it and their, their face kind of lights up and they, they suddenly glow and they, they love telling you about their Netflix series. And if they're really unwell, they're the sort of person that tweets about it all the time and then watches reruns on, on the weekend. You see, people can't help but speak about the things 
they love. They love them, so they speak about them. That the foodies post about you know their meals three times per day because they love their food. See, whatever it is people love, they meditate on it, and they read about it, and they listen to it, and so they speak about it. But we have the most incredible truth to love. We have the most amazing words to speak. And we know of the most loving act in all of history. And so my prayer for you, as it is for me, is that we can't help but speak about Jesus, the most important thing. And not because we must, not because it's a burden, not because we, 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 we even should, but because we so understand God's love for us in Jesus and we meditate on him and we read about him and we grow in our knowledge of him and we pray to him that then we can't help but speak of him because we love him. You see, by what power can we be saved? By what name? There's only one. Jesus of Nazareth, the Lord and the Messiah. And so let us boldly speak of him. Amen.